0: Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Above all things in life, that's what we want. Above everything else there is to experience, what we want more than anything else is to know that we are truly loved unconditionally, absolutely. When we're young, we dream about it. Who we're going to marry. Where we're going to live. What life will be like when we live it happily ever after. White picket fence and all. When we grow older, we try to arrange it. We plan, we plot, we date. We try to make our dreams come true, but we miss the boat entirely. When we fail to understand the essence of true love, which is found in this chapter, we have already discovered it true agape love. I went on the internet yesterday And I decided to enter in two words into a search engine to see how many hits I would get. The two words were dating services. Because I know that people look in dating services to make their dreams come true. Three million, three hundred and fifty-five thousand hits for dating services. Now I heard about a gal who went to a dating service, computerized dating service. She was very specific about what she wanted in a person to date. She wanted somebody who liked people, was small, preferred formal attire, and enjoyed water sports. The computer compiled all of the wish list and sent her a penguin. (laughs) It's not what she had in mind when she was looking for true love. We have come to the end of our series. It's been six parts, including today. The real payoff to a series on love, the real payoff is when we practice It's when it becomes a part of our lifestyle. Jesus gave a message on love to his disciples. And at the end of his message, the punchline was this. Now that you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. You know that blessed is just an old word for happy. What Jesus was saying is, men, that's the sermon, that's the message. But if you want to be happy, you won't be happy from knowing these things, you'll be happy from doing them. Practicing them. And that's what I fear may happen, is that this would just be another Sunday, another sermon. No change. I would encourage you to go back over this chapter when this day is completed, maybe later on this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow morning. Go over these verses again carefully, prayerfully, closely, meditatively. Go over the notes you've taken. Go over the tapes. Ask God to weave this into the very fabric of your thinking and lifestyle. There was a, uh, a man, he was a husband... He was a professional. He was a chemist. And he was because being so wrapped up in his work, as sometimes men do, he neglected his wife. And he was so wrapped up in his work that one day he walked into where his wife was and and told her all about his latest experiment. She'd had enough. She broke down crying. Tears rolled down down her, her cheeks, her eyes. And her husband noticed that she was crying and her husband said, tears. I've analyzed tears. Tears contain a little phosphate of lime, a little chloride of sodium, some mucus and some water. What was his mistake? His mistake is that he analyzed tears. He didn't analyze what brought the tears. We've analyzed love for six weeks. We've looked at what love is not, what love is. We've seen it as a diamond and spun it around at all of its facets. We've looked at a person who loves, a person who doesn't love. We've even taken a test on it last week. We've analyzed it. Now, today, this is graduation day. This is the time to take it from cognizance into experience. Otherwise, it really is useless. Don't be like the professor who wrote a very learned book on the subject of love. The only problem is he had never been in love. And he took his manuscript to the typist to prepare it for the publisher. And he noticed that she was a very lovely, gracious young lady. Their eyes met. They began to speak. and, And something happened to the professor that wasn't in his book. In five minutes, he was happier with love in his heart than he had been for 30 years with love in his head. These verses form the conclusion of Paul's chapter on love. It's a short chapter, a very powerful chapter. He concludes and he says, the main thing, that's love, that's what I've been speaking about, is the greatest thing. Don't miss it. Seek for it. It's the main thing in terms of eternity. It's the main things in terms of maturity. It's the main thing in terms of priority. That's how I believe he ends and he concludes this chapter. He says, in effect, where we go in eternity, love is permanent. As we grow in maturity, love is prominent. And then finally, when it comes to priorities, love is preeminent. Go back to verse 8. That's where we left off last week. That's the first ending point. He says here that where we go in eternity, love is permanent because he says love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Life can be very distracting to us. What I mean by that is that we can become so enthralled with the trivial, so bedazzled by the temporal, that we forget or neglect the eternal, what is permanent. He says love never fails, never is a long time. You will spend most of your time, most of your life in eternity, not here. This is just a tiny little sliver of the whole package. Augustine once wrote, When a person grows spiritually, he transfers his love from things temporal to things eternal, from things visible to things invisible, from things carnal to things spiritual. In other words, as you move forward spiritually... You long for, you gravitate toward that which is permanent, stable. He says, love never fails. Last week we told you what that Greek word, pipto, fails, means. It means to fall to the ground. Love never falls to the ground. It was used of a flower whose petals would wither and decay and fall to the ground. I buy my wife flowers from time to time. She likes that. I don't do it often enough, I suppose. But I do it. She loves the aroma. She loves the sentiment. She likes seeing them right there on the the table where we eat. A token of love. But I buy these flowers, bring them home, and then I, I get to watch them die. For a week. And I look at those flowers that were once connected to the to the stem, to the root, giving off life. And I think, these flowers gave their lives for you. <laughs> but they're so short-lived, they won't last very long once they are cut. Everything in life is like that, isn't it? It withers, it falls to the ground, it's temporal. Not love. Even spiritual gifts, he says... Come to an end. Notice the words concerning them. They fail. They cease. They vanish away. Those are the words of the temporary, not the eternal. Love never fails. These gifts will fail. Solomon wrote of love in the Song of Solomon when he said, Many waters cannot quench love. Many rivers cannot wash it away. You see, the Corinthian church had made such a huge deal Of tongues, prophecy, knowledge, all the spiritual gifts. When they have a shelf life, they're going to end. They treated love in Corinth, however, sort of like Cinderella. She was there but disregarded, unimportant. And the apostle is saying the main thing is the greatest thing. All of these gifts, tongues, prophecy, I'll put them all in one pile and I'll write one word over them, temporary. They will fail. They will cease. They will vanish away. When? When will that happen? It says here, when that which is perfect is come. There is coming a day when you will no longer need prophecy, tongues, knowledge. For that matter, you won't even need your Bible. You'll be in the presence of the living word. You won't need the written word. When that which is perfect is come. Some have wrongly concluded that this refers to, that which is perfect, refers to the completion of the canon of Scripture. That Paul was saying to the Corinthians, you know, coming a day when the New Testament's going to be finished, I'm working on it right now, it's a long project, and when that's finished, that which is perfect, you'll no longer need spiritual gifts. That's not what he's writing about. First of all, that wouldn't be the plain sense of understanding that the Corinthians would have in this letter. There's no mention of it. Second, prophecy doesn't end once the New Testament is completed. How do we know that? Because we've read the book of Revelation, haven't we? And the book of Revelation predicts a ministry of prophecy by two witnesses in chapter 11. Two prophetic witnesses that will come on the earth and according to Scripture will prophesy 1,260 days. What Paul is referring to is the eternal state. When that which is perfect, when you are taken into God's immediate presence by death, by rapture, and then resurrected, that's perfect. That's perfection. When that happens, these things will no longer be needed. So Scripture is an accurate revelation of God, but just by reading the Scripture, you don't see face to face. Verse 12 tells us, Then you will see face to face. When? When you're in heaven. Moses wanted to see the face of God. You remember? He said, Lord, I'm paraphrasing now. I've seen a lot of cool things. That that Red Sea thing, awesome. Manna from heaven, great. But I want to see your face. I want to see your glory. God said, Moses, if you do, you'll be dead. For no man can see my face and live. But there's coming a day when you will see the face of God. You do die. You are raptured. You are resurrected. And you will see His face. By the way, to me, this is the best description of heaven I have ever read. Face to face. What's heaven going to be like, Skip? Face to face. Well, are there going to be golden streets? Where's heaven going to be? Are are my pets going to be in heaven? Will Will I be able to ride my motorcycle in heaven? All of that is irrelevant, isn't it? Who cares? What is heaven? Face to face with your God. Dwight Lyman Moody, the evangelist, said, It's not the jeweled walls nor the pearly gates that are going to make heaven attractive. It is being with God. That which is perfect. When that happens, notice in verse 8, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. The prophets were always held in high regard, Old and New Testament. They heard from God. They spoke for God. People listened to prophets. In the New Testament, there was a character by the name of Agabus who was a prophet. He predicted that the entire Roman Empire would suffer a famine, and it did. So everybody started taking him seriously. So that in chapter 21, 11 chapters later from that prediction, when Agabus takes Paul's belt and wraps his hands and feet with it and he says, whoever owns this belt will be bound when he goes to Jerusalem, they took him seriously. Philip the evangelist, the Bible says, had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Timothy's... Ministry started by prophecy. Paul said, Don't neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy and the laying on of hands of the elders. The entire book of Revelation is a prophecy to John, a prediction of the future. There's coming a day when you won't need predictions of the future. You'll be in the future, you'll be back to the future, you'll be living in the presence of God. They'll cease. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Now, we've already discovered that the Corinthians were fond of the gift of tongues, inordinately fond of the gift of tongues. They paraded the gift of tongues. They abused the gift of tongues. They were proud that they spoke in tongues. And Paul writes to correct part of that. In chapter 14, Paul will say tongues are good, but it's not to be used in the church at large. It's to be a private prayer language by and large. And there's coming a day when that prayer language is no longer needed. That language will be obsolete. Now, we know that language becomes obsolete very rapidly. That's why we need new translations of the Bible into English every few years. Our language is fluid. It changes. At one time in history, the Greek language was the universal language. At one time in history, Latin, the language of the Roman Empire, was universal. At one time in Scotland, Gaelic was spoken by everyone. It's hard to find anybody to speak it today. Language changes, and so with this gift of tongues, this ability to communicate from our spirit directly to God's spirit, we'll no longer need it. Why? Because we'll be face to face. And when you're face to face in the perfect state, you won't even need prayer as we know it today. Remember, Jesus described prayer by saying, When you pray, go to your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. One day your Father will be seen. You'll be face to face with a renewed mind and a resurrected body. You won't need it. Whether there is knowledge, he says, it will vanish away. Knowledge is interesting. Just when we think we know it all, And I just don't mean when we're teenagers. But when we think we know it all in a certain area, our knowledge expands in that area. And so we go back to what we thought was it. And we go, that's outdated. We know more now. Geography is an example. Find a 100-year-old map of the boundaries in Europe. They've all changed. When I tried to find my great-grandfather's birthplace in Austria, I couldn't do it because... It was once Prussia, and then Germany, then it was uh, the Empire of Austria. All these borders had changed, and names of towns had changed. Science is that way. If you're a doctor, try to treat your patients with a, a textbook, a medical textbook, a hundred years old. You'll probably kill them. <laughs> Knowledge changes. There's advancements in technology. And also with this spiritual gift he's referring to, the word of knowledge. There's coming a day, there's coming a time when we're face to face. We won't need special knowledge. We won't need insight into the will of God. Teaching the Bible will be unnecessary. Youth camps will be outdated. Books and bookstores are gone. Why? Because it says in Isaiah 11, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. You get his drift. You get his point. His point is this Corinthians, the gifts of the Spirit are great. They're wonderful. They're necessary. There's only one problem with them they're temporary. They have a shelf life. What is permanent is love. That will go on and on and on. It's eternal, never fails. It never fails. Think of it the love in the Godhead is eternal. The love the Father has for the Son, the Son for the Father, the Spirit for both, etc. That's ongoing. It's perpetual. Because the Bible says God is love, and as long as God is, there will be love. Then the love that God has toward you is eternal. It didn't stop at the cross when God so loved the world. It continues now. He takes care of you. He grows you up. He provides for you. And when you die and you're with Him in glory face to face, you'll still experience God's love. In fact, it will take God all of eternity to demonstrate the fullness of His love. Ephesians 2 tells us, In ages to come, that He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That will take ages to come to do that. Then our love for one another is eternal. What I mean by that is the people you now love who are in Christ, because they're going to be in heaven with you and you're in heaven, that love continues to flow. So that even if you're separated for a short time, a hiatus by what we call death, when they're in God's presence and you're in God's presence, that love will continue. So love is permanent. Verse 11, love becomes prominent. As we grow in maturity, love is prominent. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. As we grow older, our values change. Things that we swore were very important to us, they lose their shine. Why? Because we've grown up. At one time, there was a hairstyle that was very important to you. You had to have it. That's cool. Things change. Styles change. You might lose your hair. It's irrelevant at that point. (laughs) There was a time when a, a certain style of clothing was in vogue. Shoes or pants or blouse. You had to have that. That was important. That was a value. Not anymore. In fact, I dare you, go back and look at all the old photos of yourself. You look at them and you have that hairstyle and you go, Oh, that's gross. I'm embarrassed by that. Maturity has a way of honing priority. And I hope, I pray that love becomes your priority. It's worth going after. It's worth making the greatest main thing. That's what Jesus said will make you happy if you do these things. We've all heard of Mount Everest. It's the, it's the peak of peaks, over 29,000 feet in the air. Few people have ever touched the summit. In fact, of all the people who have tried to climb Mount Everest, only 10% have ever touched the summit. So if you take 100 people, 10 of those have done it. Also, 10% who have tried to climb Everest have died along the way. And the rest have been turned back, discouraged, unable to make it for whatever reason. Ten percent have touched it. There was an American team that was going over to climb Everest. They had to take a battery of tests. They had to take a bunch of psychiatric tests. They wanted to find out who in their right mind would do it. One of the questions that the psychiatrist asked the team was this. He said, Will you make it to the top? An assortment of answers came from the team. One person said, well, I'm going to try. Another person said, I'm going to work hard at it. Another said, I'll do my best. You can bet on that. This was done individually. And when one person came in toward the end, he was a little stocky guy. He got a com- gave a completely different answer. Psychiatrist said, will you reach the top? He said, yes, I will. Three very important words in life. Yes, I will. Those are words of priority. And you know what happened? He made it to the top. Love is the Mount Everest of the Christian life. It's the pinnacle. It's the peak. It's the highest you can get. And three, four, in our case, powerful words... I, yes, I will love, we ought to be able to say. This kind of priority comes, according to Paul, with maturity. He says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. That's growth. As you grow, you value other things. We all love children. If we don't, something's wrong with us. We love kids. We love their antics. We love their weird faces that they make. We love all the little noises they make. Stuff they say. Stuff they come up with. We go, that's classic. Record that. We love childhood. But I'll rephrase that. We love children. We love childhood. Up to a point. There are limits. And what is the limit? Perpetual childhood. You see, we love childhood, but we expect the children... To grow, to not remain that way. Listen, if your 20 year old came home and acted like he did when he was two, you wouldn't be very happy. Comes home from college, knocks on the door, you open the door, and you, he says, Dada! You go, I failed! He didn't grow up! In the spiritual life, there are levels of growth. John writes about them in 1 John. He says, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the father. So there are spiritual infants, toddlers, teenagers, adults. How does Jesus Christ describe conversion? As infancy, you must be born again. Unless you become as a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's how we come. We're born into the family, spiritually, by faith. But then we don't want to stay there. We want to move from children to young men to adults, fathers in the faith. We want to grow up. You see, children have certain traits and characteristics. They're immature. Their activities are trivial. Their communication is limited. Their thoughts are limited. Their desires are selfish. Charles Spurgeon said, In the church of God there are children who are 70 years old. Yes, little children displaying all the infirmities of declining years. One would not like to say of a man who is 80 that he has scarcely cut his wisdom teeth. And yet there are such. And such were the Corinthians. They were playing in the sandbox of immaturity. They were saying, we got gifts, we got gifts, we got gifts. Paul said, you need love. All of those are great, but when you mature, what is most important isn't the toys, isn't dazzling people with your gifts. It's loving people. I think Paul would have agreed with the man who said, it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you hit the ground. They were very animated in the church of Corinth. But the one thing they lacked, as we have seen, is love. Now, during our phases of growth, from infancy to toddler to teenager to adult, there is one thing that we notice makes the difference. It's love. Children do not love like adults love. Oh, I'm not saying they don't love, but it's very imperfect, right? They they have... Puppy love, they have infatuation, they have outbursts of feelings that come and they go, but they do not have enduring, long suffering, sacrificial love. That comes with adulthood. That's where you realize I've got to die to myself, I've got to commit myself to this person or to this enterprise or whatever. That's mature love. Selfishness marks childhood. Self centeredness. My toy. My time, my room. So when I was a child, that's how I lived. When I become a man, I put away childish things. Verse 12 is interesting. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know also as I am known. We read that verse and we think, Paul, why did you insert that in this discussion? It all made sense till now. What are you doing talking about mirrors when you were just talking about growing up? Well, the people in Corinth would have got it, and here's why. Corinth was the center of the manufacture of ancient mirrors. So they would have read this, and they would have thought, I get the drift. Corinth took metal and polished it. It was highly polished, reflective mirrors. It wasn't the perfect mirrors that came in vogue around the 14th century. Where we decided that we could put silver on the back of glass and have a perfect reflection. Today it's a perfect reflection as we look in a mirror. But in those days, though it was highly polished, the reflection was imperfect. And that's the spiritual lesson. All of these things give us reflections of God, but they're imperfect. But when that which is perfect is come, when we see face to face, we'll get the whole picture. So. We live in a world that tells us about God, but the message we get is imperfect message. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day into day they utter their speech, night into night they declare knowledge. There is no voice nor language where their speech is not heard. It tells us about the glory of God, but not the love of God. We, we, we get a reflection of the character of God, but it's imperfect. There are flaws in the revelation. Then secondly, there's the scripture. And the same psalm, Psalm 19, says, The word of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. But because we are sinful, there are times when even looking at the scriptures, we don't see it clearly. We're still like children. Our knowledge is limited. Because we look at life and we look at the Word and we see these imperfections and we don't understand what this is and we wonder, what's that blemish? Why did God allow this? And even spiritual gifts, that's His point, even tongues and prophecy and interpretation and knowledge, when you see the gifts of the Spirit in operation in a church, it's wonderful. It tells us, it shows us that God is operating in the lives of His people, but it is still an incomplete picture. All of these are imperfect reflections. Now let me read this verse to you in what is called the Amplified Version of the Bible. And just imagine what it will be like. Then I shall know and understand fully and clearly, even in the same manner as I have been fully and clearly known and understood by God. That's hard to imagine. There's coming a day when you'll see it all. You'll get it. You know, all the times you you look at your life and you see the, the blemish in the mirror. I don't mean personally, I mean in life. You understand God, you read the scriptures, you look around and you see this blemish. Why did God allow this? Why would a loving God allow that? There'll be a day when you're face to face and you'll go, Oh, I get it now. I know now. I see now. One day, you will be a know-it-all. But you won't have the sinful nature anymore, so it won't be a problem. You'll know fully and completely, even as you are known. That's the perfect state. That's the eternal state. That's heaven. That's glory. Uh, somebody once asked G. Campbell Morgan, the British preacher of yesteryear, 100 years ago. I said, Dr. Morgan, when we're in heaven, will we recognize our relatives, our friends? And Morgan, in his classic British style, said, Do you think that in heaven I will be more of a fool than I am here? In other words, if I know people now and I can recognize you now, am I going to, like, forget who you are in heaven? I'll know even as I am known. Perfect, complete knowledge. So then, where we go in eternity, love is permanent. As we grow in maturity, love is prominent. And there is a third, the last verse... Verse 13, when it comes to priorities, love is to be preeminent. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Why these three? Paul gives the Christian life summarized and prioritized. If you were to boil the Christian life down to its basic components, its irreducible minimum, you have faith, hope, and love. Paul often coupled these together to the letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians, the first letter, chapter three. He said, I've heard of your work of faith, your labor of love and the patience of hope. Colossians one, we have heard of your faith in Christ, your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. That is the formula of Christianity. We begin Christian life by faith. We continue the Christian life by hope. We relate to Christ by love. Of those three, only one will remain eternally, and that's love. There's coming a time when faith will be gone, hope will be gone. Let me explain. We enter the Christian life by faith. We believe in Him. We place our trust in Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the writer of Hebrews says. And he that comes to God must believe that he is. But there's coming a day when you won't have to believe. You'll be with him. You'll see him. You'll have eternity surrounded. You'll be in the perfect environment. You won't have to just go, I believe, I believe, I believe. You're there. We live by faith, not by sight. Then we'll live by sight, not by faith. Then there's hope. And hope fuels our faith. It's what keeps us going. We hope for heaven. We hope in immortality. There's coming a time when you won't need hope. You won't have to say, I hope for immortality. You'll have it. Romans 8 says, once you see something, you no longer hope for it. It's there. But then there's love. Of these three, it says the greatest is love. The greatest because love has the greatest influence. Love has the greatest power. Love has the greatest longevity. It's the main thing. It's the greatest thing. It's the eternal thing. Love. Now maybe you have substituted other things looking for love. You've been looking for love in all the wrong places. Truly. You said... I really want to be loved unconditionally, absolutely, sacrificially. And so you think you'll find it in that experience or this relationship, and you come up with a penguin. And so you go somewhere else. That's what I want. This is the person. And you come up with another penguin. And that's not what you had in mind. What you want is God's love. That's how we were made, by the way. The manufacturer did that. I read an article that um, Napoleon's toothbrush sold for $21,000. A cruddy, old, used, frayed, bent-over toothbrush. Think of all the bacteria in that toothbrush. All of the things Napoleon picked out of his teeth with that toothbrush. It's gross, isn't it? That's what a toothbrush is. Would you pay $2 for... The person sitting next to you's toothbrush? <laughs> Forget it. He'd pay you two dollars for you to hold it. <laughs> 21 grand for Napoleon's toothbrush. Adolf Hitler's car sold for $150,000. Then Sotheby's auctions. Auctioned off the Kennedys, Jackie Kennedy and John F. Kennedy's stuff. Her fake pearl set, set of not even real. Set of fake pearls sold for two hundred and eleven thousand five hundred dollars. Come on, I mean they should be real at least for that. J.F.K. Her husband John F. Kennedy's golf clubs, just the woods. Seven hundred and twenty-two thousand dollars. Not they've even thrown the irons or the putter, just the woods, the wood that he sliced with or hooked with. Why so much? Is it the intrinsic value of these? No. Nobody would pay that for a set of golf clubs. But it's because somebody significant owned them. They're valuable. So then, what is the value of the love of God as displayed in Christ Jesus at the cross? It's priceless. It's the greatest. It's agape. It's enduring. It's sacrificing. It's eternal. It's for you. And until you discover the love of God personally in your life, all you'll have is penguins from here on out. And you'll die with penguins. It's not what you want. You want more. You want His love. Father, at the end of this chapter, at the end of this series... Paul has said it again and again. You can have this without love, you're nothing. You can say that without love, you're nothing. You can sacrifice the other thing, but without love, you're nothing. Love isn't that, but it is this. And then he describes it. And then he says it again. It's the main thing. It's the greatest thing. It endures. It's always there. And we admit, Lord, that above everything else in life, that's really what we want. We want to know that we are accepted and loved unconditionally. There is such freedom in that. And especially to think that we could be accepted and loved by God, whom we have sinned against, who would say all is forgiven. I pray, Lord, that we would discover and experience that love with you and with others. I pray this sermon would live. This message would live in us. Lest we become just knowledgeable of a subject. Educated by a truth. But we don't live it. It hadn't changed us. Then it's useless. Then it was time wasted. I pray we'd invest what you've taught us into shoe leather Lord to be converted into how we live and walk In Jesus name